0: President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief Go to America, go You will fall in fire.
1: I think cable history is exciting and personally I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello and welcome to the second season of Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series. I'm Diane Christman. This season, we're focusing on innovation in the cable industry. We visit with today's industry innovators and hear from others whose innovative ideas and actions helped establish its entrepreneurial foundation. Much of the content presented in this series is new and original, and some is edited from audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project.
2: Greetings and welcome to the Cable Center's podcast series, Stories from the Head End. This is our season two. We're talking to individuals who have interesting things to say about innovation at large. And in that, guys, really privileged to have today at the Cable Center studio, Ike Elliott, who is the chief strategy officer for Cable Labs. Cable Labs, this is 2018, is officially 30 years old, celebrating the 30th anniversary and time flies, but... uh, Ike, we look forward to talking to you about uh, what's going on at Cable Labs and also some of your thoughts about innovation, where it comes from and what it's all about. So greetings and greetings and welcome. I'm going to ask you to tell me, first of all, um, how your path intersected with that of Cable Labs. How did you sort of find one another originally?
0: Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, uh, there was a period of time in my career where I, I ran a a private consulting practice, a, a strategy consulting practice. I was between executive roles and and uh, ran this practice for about five years. And one of my clients was Cable Labs mm. during that time. And um, I worked with a number of the teams at Cable Labs then and uh, eventually went back into the telecommunications world for another executive role that, that um, I took for a couple of years and then was contacted by one of the folks I'd worked with uh, over at Cable Labs, and they Mm. asked me to come and interview for a strategy executive role at Cable Labs. And uh, and I did, and I I I was just really intrigued by it, because prior to Cable Labs, all of my career really had been in the competitive telecommunications industry, but not cable. Okay. It was always, uh, you know, level three communications or uh, MCI, uh, you know, companies that, that really um, were more on the telco side, but right. competitive telco side, and I'd never really done uh, anything in the consumer space before cable, and of course, cable's huge in the consumer space, so I, I really was intrigued by the challenge of doing something new and, and learning, uh, and it's it's been everything I'd
2: hoped it would be. Um, I know you had an academic background in the computing sciences, and even tracing back a little bit farther, what, what drew you as a younger person to the world of information technology?
0: Oh, I had a cousin uh, who was around the same age I was, and uh, we would visit each other. Uh, and we lived in different cities. He was in Philadelphia. I was usually around Washington, D.C., and growing up, he was the first one in my extended family to get a computer. Uh, and this was the, at the dawn of personal computers. He had a TRS-80, uh, Radio Shack computer and, uh, and a little, you know, a cassette tape drive. Yeah. Whenever we'd go up there, I remember one Thanksgiving weekend, we were visiting my cousins and, um, we, we spent the entire weekend just writing software for this little TRS-80 doing stupid things like drawing lines on the screen and trying to invent video games and, and stuff when I was, I was 12, you know? And I always knew from that point onward that it was something that I liked doing, but I also liked doing music and there's this sort of tug of war, you know, uh, growing up, I did a lot of singing and, uh, but there's, I spent my first year of college trying to be a music major uh. and I realized after about a year that it would be really, really hard to make a living. And uh, I switched to computer science, and, and uh, that was all she wrote. I mean, it's been
2: a great ride. When you did learn of Cable Labs initially when you were doing consulting work, what about the organization, besides its potential impact on the, on the consumer market that you alluded to, what was interesting in terms of the kind of the structure or the, um, the manner in which it was a collaborative w- organization?
0: Oh, Cable Labs is unique in the world. The, the company, um, with its membership structure... And the collaborative nature of the industry, um, not just cable labs, um, is uh, is tremendous. I mean, it, it really creates an, an atmosphere that where innovation can thrive. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I was really attracted to that. And uh, a friend of mine in the industry told me recently, you know, once you're in the industry, and if you're not um, a jerk, um, it's really hard to leave. Mm-hmm. If you're a jerk you'll get pushed out mm-hmm. but good people stay and uh, it's it's really about the community that mm-hmm. um, we've got in the industry not just with cable labs but in the industry as a whole and cable labs is not the only center in terms of hub and spoke but right. we're one of the centers um, where that community thrives and as as you know I mean collaboration is critical to innovation so um I, I saw real potential for what we could do as an industry here.
2: When people who don't know cable ask you what you do, and you tell them you work for this organization called Cable Labs, what do you cite as a reference point or a project that people can sort of get their their head around? How do you describe Cable Labs?
0: I, I think the biggest one, of course, is um, the broadband internet technology that that was pioneered um, by the industry and, and standardized specif- specifications written by Cable Labs. Mm-hmm. Um, which is known as Doxis. Uh, you know, it's not a great marketing name. Doxis is not um, Cable Labs is not known for coming up with great marketing names. Yeah, we didn't know that's what we were doing at the at the first there. But um, if you look at the broadband internet, it it would not have happened really without that technology. And,
2: and that and you can you can point at a at a party or something to a modem over on the shelf and say, look, basically, that's what we made happen.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You could pick up that modem and look at the back of it, and there's a Cable yeah. Labs logo there in yeah. terms of the certification. Every modem is certified by Cable Labs. And um, that's a that's a great legacy. I mean, yeah. half a billion people have at least one of our technologies use one, at least one of our technologies every day
2: yeah. um, around the world, and that's, that's a lot. When you think when we talk about innovation, um, it's it's an obvious dovetail with Cable Labs because, as you said, that's sort of the role and purpose of the organization. But I'm curious to to probe with you, um, even within Cable Labs, you've got a lot of smart people and physicists and engineers and and scientists. How do you guys come up with ideas? How do you even germinate the 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 kernel of a, a thought about maybe we should work on this? Innovation is both an art and a science.
0: I mean, it's um, the secret, I believe, is around the intersection of people with different skills, knowledge sets, disciplines. When they come together and solve a problem together, they're usually bringing um, different skills to a common problem. And it's through the collaboration Mm -hmm. that they find a, a uniquely powerful solution.
2: So it's not, it's not one individual isolated in an office theorizing about problems.
0: Yeah, that's a big myth, actually. I mean, it does happen, but it's, it's rare, actually. It's usually more like a team, um, you know, like the, I think Steve Jobs used to talk about the Beatles and how they were four people who were all immensely talented, but they, they collaborated and they, they overcame each other's worst tendencies and um, created something better together than they could ever have created on their own. And uh, I think that, that same dynamic happens in good innovation
2: teams. You talked about, though, part art, part science. What's, what's the art part of innovation? What's that about?
0: I, I think it'd be um, wrong to say that intuition does not play a role in uh, innovation. I, I, we have some truly intuitive geniuses on the team who just have an instinct about, you know, if we could just apply this technology, which already exists, Mm -hmm. um, to a different kind of problem, then uh, we would have something really remarkable. We could change a part of the industry that that technology was not originally invented
2: for. Right.
0: And and that kind of ability to synthesize um, ideas from multiple places and apply them in other ways that's not just science um, mm-hmm. it, it requires a certain kind of mind to do that kind
2: of work I think the music analogies are sort of irresistible because I'm thinking about bringing in a, a string section to a hard rock song for instance in other words that yeah. that instrument was not necessarily intended to be used within a three chord power progression but it, but it works um, is that too much of a stretch or kind of what you're talking about not
0: at all yeah. and, and I, I think that um, you know the genius of music of course is is it is a creative act and, and so is mm-hmm. innovation it's a creative act um, but it requires more than just the want to it requires knowing how to yeah and then often it thrives in a setting where there's more than one people who know how to do different things you know a great singer with a great um, keyboard player or a great drummer uh, they come together and they can create something better than any of them right. could have created on their own.
2: But you're you're in a world where you always have to be mindful of of real world deployment and particularly scale. The cable industry is a very scaled uh, domain. Um, how do you bring into consideration the marketplace dimensions of innovation? Do you do you have times where you just say, look? this is really cool in the lab, guys, but it's not going to fly in the real world? Or or what's your thinking process there?
0: We do. Actually, we absolutely do that, where we say, uh, you know, this is a very cool idea, but we haven't found a good, reasonable hypothesis for how this technology can solve a real problem for a real customer in the real world. And we have a diverse team. You know, our, our team is not just scientists and engineers and software developers. We have folks on the team... We've intentionally hired them for this role, I mean, to be market analysts, um, technology strategists, business case developers, if you will, people with that kind of skill set. And they've got MBAs and a technology background so that they can do the translation between what the technologists are saying and what the market needs and try to connect the dots. And that's what they're really trying to do every day is connect the dots and, and they're hoping. To create a hypothesis that makes sense, but sometimes we don't find one, and uh, we have to tell the the uh, whoever came up with the idea. We have to tell them, you know,
2: great try. Right. Uh,
0: let's come up with another.
2: Well, you know? one one that you did bring to fruition, and there is a there are a lot, but I'll just pull off the shelf some work you guys have done in um, network ma- proactive network maintenance. Yes. PNM, is that right? Yes, that's right. And well, first of all, can you describe what that is and and really why it matters?
0: Well, proactive network maintenance—what uh, it is to, just to start with—is—is is this ability to use advanced monitoring technology to really understand what's going on in the plant, um, in the cable plant, so you can precisely right. locate where a fault might be, and give give some data to um, a dispatcher, for example, to say, um, "Here's what's probably going wrong, yeah. based upon the data we've been And able to and where maybe and or, where
2: yeah yeah okay,
0: um, and whether it, is the sort of thing we need to send a truck for, or not? Um, saving truck rolls and, uh, or more precisely, pinpointing where you need to send the truck can save a ton of money. Yeah. The the industry spends um, worldwide billions of dollars on on maintaining the plant, of course. And uh, so, even a small fraction of a percent of you know, right, uh, of of uh, cost savings is is material.
2: Not for our members. not to mention the impact on perception the customer perceptions that's right. and the customer experience that's right um so how did that project then come you had a you had an objective i guess or a goal yeah and you dispatched a team to go off and produce or how does that work
0: well uh, you know the the history on this one is is um long okay. um, one of our top researchers is actually our first fellow at cable labs a guy named alberto campos um i think was one of the Primary drivers originally for this idea. He was not the only one. There's other folks in the history of cable labs who've been driving this idea. But um, Alberto knew um, in his gut. He's one of this instinctive, one of these instinctive um, innovators that we've got. He knew that we could um, do a better job of knowing what's going on in the plant and use technologies to pinpoint where where there may be an issue. Uh, and and he. He was really a prime driver of casting that vision. We've had other people throughout the history of cable apps. Now the project is led by a guy named Jason Roop, okay. who um, also didn't come from the cable industry, came from the telco industry, but has really done a remarkable job in um, evangelizing the technology and and uh, seeing it uh, being adopted more widely and having a, a really beneficial effect for the industry. And
2: Ike, what is the real world uh, presence now of of the PNM? technologies you've brought to bear. Is it fairly widely uh, adopted? Yes, yeah, so more and more so every day,
0: but, okay. uh, you know, it, it really started, uh, you know, just to name one name, um, it started, the primary adopter initially was Comcast, okay. one, one of our larger members, of mm-hmm. course, and uh, it, it really helps to have champions among our members for the technology, too, and Larry Walcott at uh, Comcast is, is uh, one of the major champions for this technology around the industry and at Comcast, and he's done a tremendous job of not only adopting it, but also being a co-inventor of the technology and a co-author of the of the vision with uh, with cable labs. and that's often the way it works. It's not just mm-hmm. a, somebody at cable labs comes up with it, and the industry takes it. It's m- much more collaborative than that.
2: It's uh, yeah. We, that we word is come up a couple of times already. Collaboration <laughs> is is it partly because the cable industry has a somewhat unique. Business circumstance where you have companies that don't, you know, aren't in each other's territories and in each other's hair, so to speak, uh, does that contribute at all to the sense of camaraderie or cooperation? Well,
0: I, I think it would have to. Um, it, the the cable labs uh, entity, I think, has benefited from the fact that our members are willing to collaborate because they're in most markets not as not not, not direct competitors not direct. of each other, yeah, but united in competing with. Um, other competitors like the telcos, okay. for example, um, as we've expanded globally um, and as the industry uh, has has extended into other markets, the the places where they're competing is it's starting to grow. Okay, um, and so we have to be mindful of that. Okay, but for the most part, our industry is still very very collaborative.
2: How are we doing as an industry in this competitive marketplace versus other providers of video data? connectivity. Do you see room for improvement in the cable offering? And how far have we come from where we were nine years ago when you joined Cable Labs, for instance?
0: Well, we've come a long way. I mean, just looking at the industry and looking at Cable Labs 10 years ago versus now, uh, it's a pretty amazing difference. And I think that if we fast forward another 10 years, uh, the same will be true. But we're um, in a world where Uh, frankly, our our broadband technology that we've been developing and and deploying has given this industry some competitive advantages that they're just beginning to leverage in a major way. I Mm -hmm. mean, obviously, we've grown market share in many geographies. Many of our members have done so. But what's really remarkable is the fact that the investments our members have made, MSOs have made, uh, in their plant in terms of extending this hybrid fiber coax infrastructure to cover, to pass... Many, many households in the United States on the order of ninety percent of households. And the ability for successive generations of technology that connect to either end of the wire to improve the service that that end users are getting, it means that we have a much more direct path to providing very broad coverage Mm -hmm. of better and better service. I mean, if you look today, the industry covers um, on the order of 70% of the United States in terms of, uh, with gigabit service. Um, And we're the first and only industry to do that. Um, A a number of other companies have gotten a lot of credit for sort of pioneering the idea of gigabit service years ago, but we're the ones who actually made it available to everyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's going to be, it's going to end up being substantially all of the the U.S. cable footprint will have access to gigabit service Um, because of the technologies they can connect to either end of the wires that are already there. Mm -hmm. That's that's something that no other industry can replicate. I mean, fiber optic carriers have to lay new fiber. It Mm -hmm. takes them years to extend their coverage.
2: Did the cable industry fully appreciate what it had in these deployed networks early on, the fact that you could render fiber uh, fairly deep into these plants, and, oh, lo and behold, we already have an access network. I mean, it was sort of, in some ways, a fortuitous coincidence, wasn't it? As the data revolution took hold, here you are. I, you know, I, I wasn't
0: around when it was actually happening, so I'm not sure what was really in the minds of those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the 1950s, for example, when they were deploying just these hybrid fiber, right. th- they weren't. it wasn't hybrid fiber coax, it was just it was coax. Like all coax. And yeah. Um, but I do know that um, when we were at Cable Labs developing that, that first hybrid fiber coax architectural concept uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, we weren't the only ones thinking of it. Okay. Um, but the, the potential of the network to be used not just for video distribution and be, mm-hmm. to be used in two-way communications and digital communications – it was already on the minds of, of some of the, the bigger minds that were in the industry at the time.
2: They uh, could see potential down the road. That's right. Yeah.
0: So around that time of the founding of cable labs thirty years ago, there were people who were already beginning to see that there was a potential for a lot more than the business they were already in and and, um, and mm-hmm. enjoying the the growth of. You know, the video business has been great for the cable industry. But it's the data business, really, that has created um, many new opportunities
2: yeah. now. Yeah, and you know, you talked about innovation on either end of the the pipe. Can you give us any sort of sneak preview about some some kind of cool or or promising areas you are exploring now at Cable Labs? Sure. Uh, what's not widely known is that uh, we have a, just a
0: fantastic optical research team. Okay. So fiber optics is a, is a major research area. That's one of the things that maybe wasn't as true uh, 10 years ago. We did have folks who knew about fiber optics then, but, but now we've got a much bigger team. And we've been developing uh, a technology that you can read about online on some of our blog posts. It's called Coherent Point-to-Point Coherent Optics. Coherent um, Optics. Yeah, and uh, it's, uh, really take, it's, it's one of these things where you say, there's this technology that's been used in another part of the industry. In long-haul networks, metro networks.
2: Fiber transmission.
0: For fiber transmission. It's high capacity, but it has not been used in access networks till now. And we can take that technology and we can simplify it and reduce cost and apply it to the access networks to create better um, massive amounts of capacity and um, lower costs for the industry. you're,
2: You're borrowing from a different market environment? Commercial services, for instance, or right. big institutional deployments. I thought fiber was fiber. Like we, you know, once it's in place, you're using a fundamental uh, light transmission and there's no improvement that can occur because the laws of physics say you've already gotten where you can go. Not so th- true. <laughs> so,
0: well, the fiber itself carries light, mm-hmm. but it's the equipment you attach to either side of it okay. that uh, carries light in different ways. And so coherent optics is distinguished from... Um, you know, the kind of technology that's used in passive optical networks today yeah. uh, is, um, uses something called on-off keying. Okay. That's one example of an alternative um, to coherent. Coherent is a continuous signal that's just modulated in terms of um, some of the dimensions, but okay. it, you don't turn it on and off. Um, and uh, analog optics has been used in um, cable networks for a long time as another alternative, but um, Both on-off keying and analog optics have disadvantages. Um, Neither can carry as much capacity on a fiber as coherent optics could. Um, And so what we've done with coherent point-to-point is um, we've created the opportunity to carry, just in the first generation of our specification, um, over 6 terabits per second of capacity on a single fiber. And for the first time, we've developed the ability to send light in both directions in the same wavelength at the same time on the same fire. They,
2: they don't collide or interfere they, with one another? They do
0: not collide and interfere. It, it, think of two flashlights. You, you're aiming them at each other. The light is not blocking each, you know, the right. light from flowing in the other direction. It doesn't bounce off of each other. Yeah. The trick is knowing which light came from which direction versus reflections. And, and we figured out how to do that uh, a year ago. Um, and that's part of our coherent optics specifications for the access network between the, right. the head end and the fiber node in a typical hybrid fiber coax deployment. Now, you can use this technology to get yourself virtually limitless capacity, um, which is especially useful if you, if you have limited fiber count.
2: Right. So if you let your mind roam, what might this mean at some point in terms of products or services or, or end-consumer experiences? this vast increase in transmission capability? So th-
0: we're, we're talking about this head end to fiber node part of the network, right. which is um, part of the distribution network, if you will, for the Internet. And um, it, it takes the kind of capacity that you may have had in the center of the network and starts to extend it more deeply. Okay. And some of the first applications for massive new capacity are um, allowing cable operators to... More to be more competitive in enterprise um, uh, data services, okay, and also uh, cellular uh, backhaul in terms of connecting to to macro towers and and that sort of thing. So,
2: not immediately a a consumer uh, implication right away. It's only indirectly a consumer, yeah. because this fiber isn't going
0: to the consumer's right. home. Um, what it does, though, is it creates more capacity at the fiber node for sharing across more and more service groups that connect at that fiber node. You may have heard uh, operators often do node splits. Yes. What they're talking about that is uh, what they're talking about with that is the fiber nodes themselves might be serving 500 households, mm-hmm. and they're sharing all the capacity on the coax among right. those 500 households. Right. If they split it four ways, now they could share capacity only 125 ways instead of 500 ways.
2: Right. So the mathematics are pretty beautiful, right? With, that's right. With a hybrid fiber coax network.
0: That's right. And and then the f- if you do split it though four ways, then you need four times the, capac- the, the to, to capacity feed to nodes. feed it yeah. on the fiber optic network. And that's where coherent point to point can make a difference is it gives you the capacity to do okay. many, many more fiber uh, node splits. Um, as just one, of, so it's indirectly beneficial to the consumer
2: market. Un- understood, understood. So the the coaxial component of these networks, writ large, will will live on for some time. It sounds like.
0: Oh yes, yeah, so there's okay. a lot of life in yeah. in the coaxial part of the network. Okay. What is happening though is, the amount of coax between the head end, and your home, is shrinking. Is shrinking. Right. Um, you know, today it's That's usually cool. more than eighty percent fiber. Um, And uh, that'll that'll grow to more than ninety percent fiber, uh, and ninety five percent fiber. And you know, there's some operators who've come out with um, you know public plans where they say we're going to have an all passive network. We have fiber all the way to the last active. We won't have any amplifiers on the coax. Okay. And that's probably on the order of within about eight hundred feet of the home. Right. So you know that's. If, if the head end is 20 kilometers away, yep, and you've only got 800 feet, you know, that's a mostly Pretty fiber big. network.
2: <laughs> and, but what's uh, economically one of the joys of that is that you've been able to do it incrementally, right? That's you right. didn't have to lay the fiber all the way to the reception point.
0: That's right. Right away. And uh, as we all know, the laying of the fiber optic cable, either uh, burying it underground or putting it on poles... Is is a fairly expensive proposition, um, especially that last few hundred feet to get mm-hmm. to the the home. Um, and so, if you can leverage the cable you've already got in the ground or or in yeah. the air, and um, but send much more higher much higher speed right. signals over that to provide not just one gigabit service, but two gigabit, five gigabit, ten gigabit service, you will be able to do that on a coaxial network. Right that's fed with fiber. Deeper and deeper with deeper fiber. Deeper
2: and deeper. Ed, there's also innovation going on internally in your organization under the under McKinney, Phil McKinney's leadership. You've created a couple of sub-entities, hoping you can take just a bit of time to explain them. One is called Curio. That's right. And the other is called UpRamp. So whichever you want to dive into first.
0: I'll, I'll start with UpRamp. Up- okay. UpRamp is uh, the way we engage with the startup community and yeah, the way the the slogan they like to use in, in the team is that um, they connect entrepreneurs, radical entrepreneurs, to the most powerful network in the world.
2: Radical entre- entrepreneurs, most powerful network. Sounds like a good yeah. marriage. Yeah, yeah.
0: And and what they're talking about with the powerful network is not just the broadband network that we we um, have built as an industry, but they're talking about the human network as well. Okay. The um, so it's a kind of a double entendre. Um, I like it, you know, but uh, and we really need the benefit of the entrepreneurial community. You know, Cable Labs is a couple of hundred people. Mm. We're not going to invent everything. We are going to invent a few things, and we've got a few areas of special okay. specialization. We, we, we do fiber optics. We do hybrid fiber coax. We do wireless network technology. Um, but we can't invent everything. So we intentionally engage with the startup world um, through our up-ramp team, and they, they do a fantastic job of um, recruiting and scouting and and trying to find those startups that can adapt what they've built to our industry. It's sort of like
2: what you were talking about earlier, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: This
2: coalescing of of sometimes technologies that weren't originally intended for application in cable. In in that's some exactly right. Um, can you name a company or two that would be emblematic of a, of an up-ramp success story or someone who's participated in the program?
0: Sure. I, we've had a number of them over the years. We, we we do two primary things with up-ramp. One of them is we run an accelerator, which we call the up-ramp federator. Fitterator. And the other thing we do is we do showcase opportunities where we give people opportunity, startups opportunities, to talk to our industry. And over the years, we've had just hundreds of companies come through showcase opportunities. But we've only been doing the accelerator for about three years. and okay. 10 companies have come through the program. Um, you know, Edgewater Wireless is one of them. They, they do, yep. they continue to work with us even after being in the program and trying to bring some of their innovative ideas and help us develop uh, some innovation I- ideas for the industry. Okay. Um, there's uh, a- another one, uh, you know, uh, Velocidata, who has an internet. Appliance, a network appliance, if you will, that uh, that can do line speed analysis of stuff that's going across the line without slowing the traffic down. Okay, um, you know, through uh, use of GPU acceleration, um, TEL2 does uh, very deep caching of uh, video content um, so that you could uh, more more efficiently deliver it to end users. There's a, there's ten companies like that that are that have already come through the program and, and they're really doing.
2: Great work. It, and I had a chance to talk with Scott Brown, who who works for you and at Upramp, and he said, you know, one of the problems companies face in their life cycle, it's not always getting early-stage seed money to start developing a project, but sometimes there's this middle ground that's, that's difficult when you're waiting for orders to come in. Uh, you're looking maybe for a, a second-stage kind of financing. If I understand correctly, I, Accelerator or Fitterator um, – Really compresses the time that you might require to go to market. Is that one way to look at it? That is. That's exactly okay. right.
0: That's the goal of the program. Okay. Is, the, the, the slogan there is deals, not demo days.
2: Deals, not demo days. All so, right. Uh,
0: our federator – You know, a lot of accelerators. At the end of the program, you have a demo day, and people drink a lot of beer and congratulate, and you're done. high five each other, and you're uh, done. Um, but is the company really better off for having been through yeah. the accelerator? Right. Um, the only real measure of that is whether you were able to do more deals. Okay. And our accelerator is intended to make all the right introductions and help people really understand how they can solve a real problem for our industry. So it's a win-win. And um, and by the end of the program, um, every company in the program has deals that they couldn't have had otherwise. They've got a, a huge beachhead. benefit. They've got a beachhead in the industry. They've got... Um, relationships they can build on. Um, they've got success stories that they can tell to other uh, companies in the industry mm-hmm. to grow their business.
2: If if any of our listeners are interested, how does one participate or put yourself up for consideration? It's all on Upramp.
0: upramp.com. All right, there uh, we go. So, uh, there, there's, there's ways to apply Save for no the Fitterator and okay.
2: uh, there's ways to apply for the showcase opportunities. And then Kirio, Ike, what's, uh, what's the mission in life for Curio?
0: So Curio is our for-profit subsidiary that is focused on creating um, services for not just the cable industry, but for others in the ecosystem to the benefit of our industry. Um, But uh, there's three primary lines of business in Curio. One of them is testing. It grew out of our ability to do um, certification testing for cable modems and other um, customer premise equipment devices. Okay. but we've extended that testing capability and, and the, the fantastic capability to test DOCSIS equipment and uh, related equipment, Wi Fi equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've extended that and offered that as a service, not just to our members and their vendors, but anybody else who wants to buy it. Okay. And, uh, and similarly, we, we have a, a digital security certificate business. We've been putting these certificates in DOCSIS cable modems. For um, over a decade, and uh, we're selling digital security certificates to other industries now, including um, the uh, the IoT industry, the energy industry. Uh, they're they're buying digital security certificates from us now. And uh, the third line of business is online services, where we we take data sets that um, our members have and. Uh, we uh, we create value-added services out of those data sets. Uh, a big example is our go-to broadband service, where we um, we have the address databases of where each of our members has service coverage. Okay, and okay. Uh, and people can do lookups on the internet through Google or whatever, and and uh, find out for a given address who who's, their provider is, who their cable provider is. Okay. Um, and uh, we're kind of behind the scenes mm-hmm. because it's affiliates who are actually answering those, those queries, mm-hmm. but we're the database behind the affiliates, and uh, so that, that's uh, a service we provide for, for the industry.
2: You have the, the word uh, strategy prominent in your, in your title. How do you organize your world and your life to take advantage uh, or to create opportunities to think about strategy because it's really easy for people all walks of life to get enmeshed in the day-to-day so how do you approach uh, You know, maybe stepping back a little bit and thinking about what's ahead?
0: I do two things that help me that I, I'll highlight. Um, it's really hard for people to find space where they can create, create flow is what they call it, uh, You know, this ability to think over an extended period of time. You need right. that as a strategy. And, and so I intentionally block out two hours of my calendar every day. Every day? Every day. And I say, don't schedule anything on that. If something really important comes up, I'll step on that time. But for most days, I'll get a two-hour block okay. where I get to think and write and read and consider options. And uh, you know, you need that if you're going to be a strategist. You need to be able to focus. Uh, and it's, it's not just time on your own as well. You, you might use that time to bounce ideas off of Somebody you trust, and in In, in the service of
2: of thinking and innovation,
0: right? I I do a lot of during my two-hour blocks. I do a lot of walking around the building and and uh, stopping in on you know some of our top researchers and saying, you know, what if we thought about this problem differently? Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes that's all it takes, right, to start something afoot. That's right, an idea. That's right. And the other thing I do is I read a lot. And I do that not during the workday, usually I do it at night, but um, I'll, I'll always have something going and I I'll take inspiration from a lot of the things I read.
2: Who, who do you admire in the technology field at large? I mean, it's an open-ended question. It could be Steve Jobs, it could be uh, your boss. <laughs> who, who, who looms large in your, in your mind for a really innovative, difference-making individual?
0: Oh, my heroes are, are not the typical, uh, you know, sort of media heroes that like right. Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. I mean, th- those gentlemen did amazing things. Don't get me wrong. There were always um, question marks around them in terms of some of their behaviors, of sure. course. Right. Um, I, my heroes are usually heroes of science, not okay. so much heroes of industry, um, you know, folks like Stephen Hawking and mm-hmm. – um, some of the great physicists we've had, Albert Einstein, mm-hmm. um, uh, those are, if, if you read Einstein's writings, for example, it, it is, um, he was not just a genius. He was also deeply thoughtful mm-hmm. about not just the physics and the science, but everything. Right and how it all fits together, and
2: how it fits
0: with human relationships. And
2: because I would think there's a temptation or a, um, some pressure to completely immerse yourself in just the technology side of network communications and data transmission. But I think what you're saying is you it's a really more holistic approach to thinking about the world and to thinking about problems?
0: Absolutely, and I think you need to draw on um, the, the, the entire world for inspiration. Okay. It is, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a musician. I find that if I ignore music for too long in terms of trying to make music, um, it creates changes in my brain and makes me less wow. effective. Wow. And so I have to go back That's to That's really it. cool. I yeah. have to go back to. What's it. your instrument? I, I, I sing primarily, but, but I okay. also um play guitar. Okay. Um, so I, I'm a I'm an okay guitar player.
2: Yeah. And any you, an okay you need to you need to create. You need to Make yes. something new. Yes. Yeah,
0: and I find that doing it with an ensemble, doing it with others, is just—it's not only helps you rewire your brain in important ways, but it is—it uh, demonstrates for me how a, an effective team can work together. Exactly.
2: I mean, the parallels are pretty, pretty apparent. Yes, I think um, you know, when you would go in as a young person for a job interview and they'd say, where do you see yourself in five years? And it was always an impossible question to answer, but where do you see yourself in five years? And I'm talking uh, about cable labs.
0: You know, we make plans and God laughs. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, I, I just, somebody asked me just this weekend, I was at a holiday party and they said, you know, how, how long are you going to keep working, Ike? And I, you know, I'm not near retirement age really, but, um, You know, he was just curious because he's closer to it than I am. Mm. And uh, I said, I'm going to keep working as long as I'm happy. And uh, what makes me happy is working with great teams Mm. and uh, creating great things together, great outcomes together. And as long as I'm doing that, I'm going to be happy. And I I hope that I'm still doing that in five years.
2: And when you think of great teams, and I know you um, look for people who are tremendous um, scientists, physicists, theorists. What other attributes do you want in people um, who come to work for Cable Labs? There's a book that I've
0: read uh, a number of years ago um, that I really like on this, and I think it, he frames it very simply. It's a Patrick Lencioni book mm-hmm. called The Ideal Team Player, and uh, I highly recommend it. But he talks about three attributes. You've got to be hungry, you've got to be humble, mm-hmm. and you've got to be smart. And when he talks about hungry, that's pretty self-evident what that is. That's, you know, we don't want any slackers on the team. Ambitious, demanding, caring. You've got to be a hard worker. That's what hungry means. Um, But humble is not what many people take it to mean. It's not about thinking less of yourself. Okay. It's about um, thinking of yourself less. Okay. Uh, It's about thinking of the needs of others and uh, putting their needs ahead of you and, and being aware of what their needs are. And that kind of leads to the third one, which is smart. Mm-hmm. They're not talking about wicked high IQs. They're talking about EQ, or social skills. Smart around your social skills. Those are the three things that make up an ideal team player. And we we recruit for those in addition to right. folks who are really smart in their field, uh, in their discipline.
2: But you've brought into Cable Labs, I think you alluded to a, a couple of people, people who are not cable people, right? People who are not in the cable community before they joined Cable Labs.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, Scott Brown, who you mentioned earlier, right. who leads the UpRamp team, uh, he was not a cable person before he came to us. He was a, a serial entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. He's, he's uh, founded or been on the founding team of eight startups. Um, so he's been them, there.
2: He's been in that world.
0: That's right. Yeah. But n- none of those startups were in the cable industry. Okay. Um, and is that okay? I mean, is it's
2: apparently... You know, it used to be that this industry tended decades ago to hire from within, it seemed like.
0: It's not only okay,
2: I think it's required
0: uh, that we look outside to hire mm-hmm. um, talent because um, we risk creating an echo chamber in the industry. Um, if we only listen to and hire people who have experience in the industry, then it's really hard to for new ideas to take root. Okay. Um.
2: um because you are uh, well-rounded or well-read and you you consider a lot of inputs, if you were on the advisory board for a cable company, let's say it's a medium-sized domestic MSO, if we can still use the term MSO, I think we can, um, what would you talk to them about in terms of preparing their business for the next five to 10-year evolution? What can they expect? Will the video category continue to sort of uh, face pressures and where would you orient your your business
0: oh that's an excellent question might take a long time to answer it but okay. uh, I'll, I'll try to condense it um, we are victims of our own success in this industry many of our leading products uh, and services that we sell are reaching saturation in mm-hmm. terms of the, we've sold to most of the customers who want to buy it or can afford to buy it uh, we have uh, a lot of market share in many of our key products, and it's hard to win additional. Every additional percentage point share is hard to get. Right. And in some parts of the market, in terms of you mentioned video, um, the number of substitutes is proliferating and has been for some some years. So um, the competitive intensity in mm-hmm. the video product, in particular, is uh, is very high. Um, so. We all know from basic economic theory that when the competitive intensity is high, it's harder to make a profit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the case in the video market in the United States. In other geographies, it's not as big an
2: issue, right.
0: really. Right. Um, but the average revenue per user in the video market in the United States is pretty high. So, um, you know, it's a it's an issue for our industry. I, I think we recognize that. Um, the broadband product is awesome, and it's doing great, but it's also coming close to saturation in terms of market share. Okay, um, There's still opportunities to add more value for customers and and uh, reap more rewards from those customers if we do a better job. But um, And the commercial services business is still a growth engine for the industry, and um, yep. it, it will continue to be for some number of years, but it will sometime over the next decade,
2: reach probably... An, you're, you're concerning me. You're, we're running out of businesses here.
0: Th- that's the <laughs> issue. So th- that is really what is driving a number of operators to uh, add new products to the product line. So that's why we're looking at mobile.
2: Wireless. Mobile, wireless. Yeah.
0: Mobile services. Okay. Um, some, the two largest cable operators in the United States have begun offering MPNO services. Mm-hmm. I think this is a factor in, in why they've started to do that now. Um, and uh, this quad play of being able to offer mobile with fixed broadband, with voice, and with video, all in a bundle, is already um, an uh, a dominant way of doing business in Europe. Right. Um, it may be heading that way here, too. And uh, customers may find that the discounts they get with the bundle, if they need all four of those things, uh, make it preferable to go with a quad play operator. Okay. So that's something you got to pay attention to. Mm. Um, I, I do think the video business is challenged, but I think that in the context of typical large operator bundling strategies, it's, it's, it's going to continue to be a part of the bundle, okay, in some way. Okay. Um, and. Uh, there will continue to be a proliferation of competitors on video, but, right. but our members are still going to be in that business and, and be good at it.
2: Well, let me, I'll, I'll close with this theme. I'd love to hear your reaction to the notion that um, in my life, I've dabbled with various internet video services. It's fun, it's interesting, it's intriguing. But at some point, it gets to be a kind of a pain in the butt to rig up all of your inputs and your interfaces. And do you think, this is my question, is there really a genuine economic rationale for being the, the convenience provider, for being the fulcrum, if you will, around which a lot of these video services turn? We've seen Comcast and others add services like YouTube and Netflix to their offering. But is it? do you see that as a, a direction for this industry to pursue sort of the aggregator of video services even if they're not your own?
0: I think that for a few super aggregators super there's aggregators. a business there's a business there yeah that's, that's what I call them as super aggregators yeah. um, the, the one-stop shop mm-hmm. the the shopping mall for anything you might want to buy, buy in the video space
2: making it easy uh, making it easy convenient
0: right. um, I think that Comcast has done a great job with their x1 platform um, you know showing the way about how that can be done yep um, I, I don't think everybody can be a super aggregator I think it flies against the notion of super aggregation. Uh, so, the um, I, I think we're going to see a small number of super aggregators that okay. compete in that space.
2: Okay. There's a limit. To That's right. Who can do it well? That's right. And at scale. That's yeah. right. This has been a remarkable conversation, Ike. I totally appreciate you stopping in the studio to uh, not only tell us what's up at Cable Labs, but to offer some some tantalizing tantalizing visions of where we're going as an industry. So appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I will say for the Cable Center's uh, podcast series, Stories from the Head End, uh, see you next time. Today's episode
1: was produced by the Cable Center and made possible through generous underwriting provided by the cable TV pioneers. The supervising producer for the series is Leela Kakoris. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Diane Crispin for The Cable Center, the nonprofit organization that tells the story of the American cable industry and connects people and ideas globally to advance innovation. Thank you for listening.